When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Here's your host, Rob Fontenot. Astros Baseball is brought to you by Ram Shirts. Ram Shirts offers custom printed and embroidered apparel. They offer direct-to-garment printing for small runs and screen printing for larger runs. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Ram Shirts. Go to RamShirts.com for all your custom apparel needs. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, Josh Rawwich, Josh, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Rob. So if I my voice sounds different today, folks, I have been battling COVID. I didn't post it on social media or anything, but uh, I'm okay. But I might have a raspy voice. I kind of hear it. Uh, so you have become just a few months ago, right? The eighth president in the 82 year history of the of the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame. What, what is the actual role of the president? What, what's your job there? Well, just like uh, any other business, you, you have close to 100 employees there. So clearly running day-to-day of the Hall of Fame is, is one of the biggest things that I'll do. And in fact, uh, this week, we're actually going to be rolling out our strategic plan for everything we're going to do in 2022. So all the things that if you were the president of a team or the president of any other business, um, that's obviously one of the major things that, I, that I'll do. Um, secondarily is, is representing the team, excuse me, representing the hall out into the public. So things like the announcements of, of who gets into the Hall of Fame and media hits and honestly, things like this, doing this podcast, just being kind of the public face in a lot of ways of the Hall of Fame's messages. That's a big part of what I'll do. And then ultimately, we're a nonprofit organization. And most people don't necessarily realize that you can you can be a member of the Hall of Fame, but we're supported by our members. And so it's going out and soliciting donations and developing funds for the Hall of Fame so that we can continue to be around for another 80 plus years. Those are really the main things that I'd say are the, the key roles of my job. So you graduated from Indiana University, sports management, uh, sports marketing and management and and this happens with broadcasters you know they they get into broadcasting and maybe they want to be a a football broadcaster but a job just comes to them and they end up in another sport your your career has been all baseball is that what your goal was Mm -hmm. you know in college when i get out of here it's all baseball yeah, it's pretty funny uh, you ask it that way, but it is definitely my passion, has been my passion since I was a kid. Um, I often joke that I wish my passion had been football because they have one-tenth of the games and nowhere near the same hours that you have to have when you're working 81 nights a year, 81 games a year like I did the last 27 years. But yeah, I basically grew up a huge Dodger fan, huge baseball fan, and played it through high school. 
I knew I wasn't gonna be good enough to play it in college, but when I got to college, I, I, um, wasn't, I wasn't in school for, I don't know, a month before the professor said, Hey, don't be afraid to send your resume to your hometown team. You never know what'll happen. And at that point, I don't think I even knew that there were jobs in baseball, like the ones that I would then eventually get. But ultimately I did land an internship after my freshman year, the summer after my freshman year. And from that point forward, I mean, that probably two days into my internship, I knew that that was exactly what I wanted to do for the next 50 years. And I don't know, I guess we're in 28 years in and, and I still haven't gotten bored in any way, shape or form. It's uh, it's an unbelievable way to make a living. And I, I absolutely, I, there's certainly other sports that I enjoy, but baseball is without a doubt my passion. So what was your first job out of college? Did you go back to the same team that gave you an internship? Yeah, so I um, I graduated college basically about a month before I graduated. I got a call from somebody who had been working with me at the Dodgers who, um, during all my internship years, there really wasn't any turnover. I, I interned for three straight summers, uh, all for free, or at least for tickets. I guess at the time you could still do unpaid internships. So I worked for three straight summers, basically just for a couple tickets, every homestand, that sort of thing. And then uh, right before I graduated, somebody in our office called and said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but Pullman Tracy just left. You ought to call Paul and see if uh, see if he's going to replace her. And basically, I don't know, about a month before I graduated, uh, I had a quick conversation with him. I guess I had proved myself enough over the three summers that he basically said, how quickly can you get back here? And I said, graduate on uh, Friday. I'll be there on Monday. And that's what we did. I literally uh, graduated, got in the car, drove back across country. That was actually the, the Friday was the day that Mike Piazza got traded from the Dodgers to the Marlins. And Monday morning, I started my job in the marketing department, helping take down all of his billboards and advertisements all throughout the city of Los Angeles. It was pretty, a uh, pretty crazy way to start my, my full-time Dodger career. So sometime while you're with the Dodgers, you decide to leave and be a beat writer for MLB Advanced Media. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. I I don't know how many how many of your listeners really kind of understand how that um, the, the websites of your favorite teams work. But ultimately, back when I started um, in the early days of the internet, every team kind of had their own webmaster, their own uh, website that was totally different from all the others. And during there right before. 2001, when they redid the CBA in 2000, MLB was was starting to get worried that teams like the Yankees were going to just start making hundreds of millions of dollars off of this internet thing, while teams like the Expos were going to make $30 million and that the gap in revenues was going to just keep widening. So they created MLB Advanced Media, which most people would know as MLB.com. And when they created it, they needed two people from every team to, to basically be the initial employees. One of them was going to be the tech side person. And one of them was going to be the content person. And so they, I was working in the Dodgers PR department at that point. I had moved over from marketing to PR. And uh, there was somebody there who said, you know, we think you'd be a perfect fit to handle the content for the website. And it just see this is right at the peak of the dot-com boom. And it just felt like, you know, this is a really great opportunity. And so I took it. And about a week later, uh, the guy who ran content for MLB.com said, all right, you guys are all, he gets us all on a call. There's 30 of us. And he says, you guys are all now beat writers covering your teams just the way the LA Times or the New York Times would. And for a lot of them who came from backgrounds that had nothing to do with journalism, they really probably only did it for a very short amount of time before thinking, man, this isn't quite what I thought it was. For me, I was lucky I had grown up in a household with two journalists as parents. 
and I had written for the school paper in college. So I had some idea kind of how to fake it a little bit. I was certainly not trained classically like a journalist, but I got lucky. I spent 2001 covering my, my childhood team, the Dodgers. I got to make my first traveling road trips that way, really um, interviewing players, writing stories, et cetera, et cetera. And then basically during the off season of 2001 and 2002, they had a opening up in the Bay Area. Uh, somebody had retired or, or left that job. And my then girlfriend, now wife, was living up there. And, and I said, yeah, I'll, they were looking for somebody to take that job. And I said, I'll move up to the Bay Area. So I actually got to cover the 2002 Giants, uh, which was Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent, that whole Dusty Baker, that whole group. And in fact, Dusty kind of very fitting for this podcast. I got to know Dusty in, in 2002. And uh, they went to the World Series. I got to cover all that, the All-Star game, you name it. So I did that for a couple of years, but then ultimately the Dodgers came calling and I, I went back to uh, the PR world in 2003. So only two years as a reporter, but I learned a ton doing it. So when did you go to the Diamondbacks? I know you spent would, some time there. Yeah, so that would have been 2011. Um, the guy who was my boss at the Dodgers by the name of Derek Hall, he was our senior vice president of communications at the Dodgers. He left. He left right around 2004 when Frank and Jamie McCord bought the Dodgers and he went to the Diamondbacks uh, with a little stop in between. But he basically became the president of the Diamondbacks. So it was 2011, right around the All-Star game, actually, when they were hosting the All-Star game in Phoenix. He called and said, hey, would you ever think about moving your family out here? And it was just a great opportunity for me. Uh, my kids were really young. We, we, we knew that living in Los Angeles was both extremely expensive, uh, that the growth opportunities there might not be the same as they would have been at the Diamondbacks. And ultimately knowing that our owners had, had at that point gone through a bankruptcy, a divorce, um, MLB had come in and taken over the team. And we just didn't know whether, I didn't know if the same owners were going to, were going to be owning the teams or in that case, I should say owner. Cause at that point, Frank had already fired Jamie, but um anyway long story short it was 2011 the, the the first day of the postseason the Dodgers season ended I think on September 30th and I got on a plane flew to Milwaukee to meet the the D-backs for the NLDS against the Brewers so that was how my career started in Arizona and I spent the last decade there before coming to the Hall of Fame in 2018 you won an award the Robert O official award for public relations excellence which is given to an executive who excels in promoting the game. And this is such a fitting award for someone who is going to take over the Hall of Fame, which is pretty much promoting the game of baseball. How, how did getting the job as president come about? Well, interestingly, it was actually the last two presidents of the Hall of Fame, oddly enough, are actually also past official award winners. Um, Jeff Idelson, who was the president for about a decade, he actually gave me a call and just said, hey, I think you'd be a perfect fit for this. I don't know if you guys would ever consider moving to Cooperstown. It's obviously very different than Phoenix and, and L.A. where I grew up. But he said, I think you'd be perfect for this. You've got all the right connections in the game. You've got the right personality and the business background. Would you ever think about that? And um, that was a few years ago. Ultimately, um, Tim Mead, a different official award winner, wound up becoming the president for a couple of years. And he just ultimately, when he left his family um, back in California, he was at the Angels for a long time. He decided he really couldn't keep doing it, dry, flying back and forth from, from Anaheim to Cooperstown. And Jeff called again, and and uh, he had actually come back as the interim president for about four months. But Jane Forbes Clark, our chairman of the board here at the Hall, and the granddaughter of the woman who started the Hall of Fame, I ultimately interviewed with her. 
I interviewed with Commissioner Rob Manfred, who's on the board. I interviewed with Cal Ripken Jr. and with Harvey Schiller, just a titan in the sports industry. And those were the four that, that made the decision that they thought I was the right fit for president of the Hall of Fame. So yeah, I, I'll never forget her calling and saying, you know, the search committee has decided that we'd like to offer you the position of president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And I just think I said, I can't, I don't think, I wish you could see the smile that's on my face right now. It, it just <laughs> was an incredible moment after, uh, after a quarter century of working in baseball. I was going to ask you why you decided to like leave a specific team and go to the Hall of Fame, but it pretty much sounds like a dream job. Yeah, I mean, so many people have said in the last few months, like, is this something that you always dreamed of having? And I, I just said, you know, you don't, who even dreams that big? Like, I, I, there's no way I would have ever thought that I would be the president of the Hall of Fame or live in Cooperstown. I'm, I'm staring out my window right now at piles of snow everywhere. So that's the, the flip side of living in Cooperstown. But um, it, it really is. It's, it, it, it is a incredible opportunity. And I really hadn't been looking to leave the Diamondbacks. I they were incredible to me for a decade from ownership all the way to all the friends that I made throughout the organization. But an opportunity like this just doesn't come along very often. And I remember telling my wife the day that Jeff Idelson called, hey, the, the Hall of Fame called and asked about whether I might be interested in being the president. And I remember she said, how could you, if you got offered that, how could you possibly turn something like that down? And as we had plenty of time to think it through and go through the interview process, we really, we realized we couldn't. It's just too great of an opportunity. And and so far, four months in, we're, we're actually as soon as as soon as I finish the podcast, we can we're going to continue the move across town from the the house that we're staying in to the house that we just bought, and uh, we're settling into Cooperstown, New York. It's an incredible place, and hopefully, uh, a lot of your listeners will get a chance to come out and visit if they haven't already. So you moved your family with you? Yeah, that was really that was never even a thought that I wouldn't. Um, we've got two kids who are fourteen and eleven, and. Um, we really kind of saw this as a, as a great place to raise kids. That's what Jeff has told me. That's what I, all of our research has told us. Great schools. I mean, you don't have to lock your doors and kids can walk anywhere in the village. I mean, it's really, a, it, it feels a lot of ways like you've stepped into a time machine and you're living in the 50s, but with all the modern amenities of, of modern day, you obviously have challenges that were pretty far from the closest Target or Whole Foods or whatever it may be, Trader Joe's, but um, we just never even considered the idea that I wouldn't be living here full time and, and coming into the office every day. Because I think that's if you're going to run an organization I mean, you're going to be in a role like this, I just think you have to be all in. And um, I know Tim tried his best and was he, I mean, he was a huge mentor of mine. He was actually, interestingly, when when you win the official award, they have, have you pick somebody who's going to actually hand it to you. And I actually picked him because he's been a mentor of mine forever. So to follow in his footsteps and Jeff's footsteps is really just pretty special to me. And, and I'm absolutely loving it here. So you mentioned about having fans who listen to this podcast go visit the Hall of Fame. How has COVID affected the Hall of Fame being open? Well, pretty similar to all the other businesses in the country that we, we did shut down. I wasn't here yet, but March of 2020, we did shut down for about three months and they reopened in the summertime with all of the sorts of things, time ticketing and um, distancing and masks and, and you name it. Um, but we've been open since basically the summer of 2020. The biggest hit has been to attendance. I mean, we, there are years where we can draw as many as 300,000 people to the museum. Um, in 2020, we drew about 60,000. And this past year, we drew about 160,000. So we're on our way back. We're certainly hoping to get back up towards the higher numbers um, 
in the future, but you can imagine when when your business model is predicated pretty heavily on on things of that nature. Certainly donations too. We had incredible donors who stepped up um, to help us get through the pandemic and found some grants that helped us as well through the state of New York and various other museum industry grants. But it's it's very challenging to to try to completely change your business model overnight and figure out how to keep everybody safe. And that's that's really what we continue to do. I mean, right now with Omicron doing what it's doing, so obviously I don't have to tell you um, just how how much it's spreading. We're just being extra careful, and uh, we're all hopeful that by the time we kind of get through this little this little peak right now in the winter time, that uh, as we get into into the regular season, we'll be able to open up uh, pretty close to full everything by the time by the time we get into March, April, May. So a big time of the year, as far as I as I know, I mean, besides people visiting is in July when you induct the new members to the Hall of Fame. How exciting is that going to be for you for your, as your first year doing that? Um, it's it's unbelievable. And I, I was fortunate enough when I, um, I actually grew up going to Joe Torrey baseball camp and then I worked with Joe um, when he was manager of the Dodgers. So I actually was here in 2014 um, to see it as a fan for both him and Tony LaRusso, who was then working for the Diamondbacks. We just hired him. And then the next year I came back and saw Randy Johnson's induction. We, I was part of the group that kind of helped him through that whole process. So I had seen it a couple times before getting here this past August. And then I was very fortunate that when I got here, I had about two, three weeks of overlap with, with Jeff Idelson, who had come back as the interim president. So I actually, believe it or not, sat on the stage for this last one uh, next to Larry Walker and opposite of Derek Jeter and, um, so I've seen it, I've seen it, but I was not heavily involved in the planning of it. It was mostly just phone calls I could hear. I wasn't quite as involved. So it will definitely be different being in this role. And believe it or not, we start planning uh, the, the, the next induction pretty much the day after the, the last July. So we're already heavily into all the things that go into putting on this event in July and regularly having conversations with Jim Cott and Tony Oliva and the the descendants of, of our other four inductees. And then we'll find out later this month on Tuesday, the 25th, if any of the other players get in from the BBWAA vote. So what is the city of Cooperstown like? It's just like a small, I think you already touched a little bit on this, but yeah. it's, like, it's a village. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a village. Oh, it's a village. 2000 people. I mean, yeah, some people call it a town city, whatever, but everybody here calls it a village. Um, it's about 2000 people that live inside the village. And then, the greater Otsego County is about 60,000, but that's a pretty pretty wide area that it covers. So the village really is, I mean, anybody who's been here, you have Main Street, which is where all the shops and, and restaurants and baseball stores and things of that nature are there right alongside the Hall of Fame. But then just like any other place, I mean, we've supermarkets and county courthouse and the library and all the other things that go on. And there's probably... I don't even know if I, I could put a number on it, maybe 25, 30, quote unquote, streets or blocks of houses that the 2000 people or so are living in. And uh, everything is pretty much walkable within the village. And then you start getting outside the village and you can, um, I mean, just more and more. There's a lot of lot of farming out here. So lots of land if you live outside the village. But if you're in the village, uh, like our new house that we're moving into is, you, you literally can walk just about anywhere in about five minutes uh, around Main Street. So there's plenty of hotels for people to stay in if they go to visit. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's not, I wouldn't say plenty of, there's certainly, we have the, the, the <laughs> one that all the Hall of Famers stay at. The Otisaga is actually over a hundred years old. Um, it's an unbelievable property that's owned by the same family, James Forbes Clark, who, whose grandfather started the Hall of Fame. He also started the hotel. Um, so that, that hotel is without a doubt, I would recommend anybody stay there. It sits right on the lake. The whole, the whole village, I should have said, um, kind of revolves around the lake in summertime, everything from kayaking to boating to fishing, you name it. We've got this gorgeous lake it's not just like a pond. I mean, it's a, it's a 10 mile lake and takes you, or excuse me, 10 minutes to drive from one end to the other end of the lake. So anyway, you, you, um, you've got the Otisaga that overlooks that. Then you've got kind of some of the best Western types that are um, just outside of town. And then we have tons of bed and breakfast. So you have a lot of people who have turned their houses into rental properties and or B&Bs. And so a lot of people stay at places like that. And if you do, you're literally, again, you can be a one or two block walk from the Hall of Fame, staying in a, an old Victorian home that's been turned into a bed and breakfast. It's really pretty cool. I mean, like I said, you got when you start to plan your trip, you can actually go to our website. We have a whole page of the website that's called planning your trip. And it'll tell you all the places that you can stay and where to fly into and how to get here and all the other things you can do. I mean, Cooperstown has more than just the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's got um, two other really great museums, an art museum and a uh, what's called the Farmer's Museum. It's got an incredible golf course, uh, leather stocking that's right on the lake that's gorgeous. I mean, it's a it's a full weekend, if not more um, time you, you want to put in if you're going to make your trip out here. That exactly answers my question. Like, yeah. if if I went there, is there more to do than just going to the Hall of Fame? And you answered that. So if you visit yeah. the Hall of Fame, what are what are some of the cooler things that you'll see there? Oh, man, that's such a hard. We have 40,000 artifacts, <laughs> three-dimensional artifacts. So it's very hard to answer that. A, but, I mean, ultimately, what we tell people to do, um, I mean, you really want to leave at least one full day. And, frankly, if you're a huge baseball fan and you're coming here for this purpose, I'd leave more than a day, maybe two. Um we really have three floors of the museum uh, and the Hall of Fame. So the, the plaque gallery, which many people equate with the Hall of Fame, because that's where the plaques are, is on the lower level. And we usually tell people to save that for the end of their trip or for the end of the kind of visit. And then basically the second and third floor take you through about a dozen exhibits, everything from the early baseball, uh, 1800s, and you start to learn about how the game started. And there's a timeline that'll take you all the way up through modern day and, and current players. We've got exhibits on, um, we've got Viva Baseball, which touches on baseball within the Hispanic community. We have Ideals and Injustices, touches on uh, Jackie Robinson and integration and the black baseball experience. We've got uh, Diamond Dreams, touches on women in baseball and record books. There's really so many incredible exhibits and then ultimately at the top floor, um, you'll wind up getting a chance to go to a, lo a locker of your favorite team. Um, so for the Astros, we will have six, seven unique items that are, that are related to the Astros, quite often more recent, um, things that we would have collected in the last decade or so. And um, there's, a whole, there's a whole section called Autumn Glory that right now focuses on the Braves, but obviously at one point was focused on the Astros. Um, so it's just, you know, there's there's incredible um, all throughout the museum. I mean, it's hard to even tell you. There's a Babe Ruth exhibit. There's a Hank Aaron exhibit. Uh, you just learn so much. And then you walk down at the end to this plaque gallery and you're just kind of blown away by the, the plaques of the 330 some odd people who have been inducted over the years. It's pretty cool. So how do you get some of the items 
like from current day, like what kind of items are you putting in there, say from last year or something? So throughout the year, um, we will, anytime something happens, let's say no hitter. I was at the Diamondbacks when Madison Bumgarner threw a no hitter last year. And we will hear from the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame reaches out and says, hey, would, with no hitters, we often try to collect a cap. Hey, would, would you be willing to ask Madison if he'll donate his cap from his no hitter? And I'd say nine times out of 10, the, the guy said, maybe even more than that, 99 times out of 100, the, the, the player um, or whoever we're asking is more than willing because they know that ultimately they're then going to be remembered forever with a, an artifact in the Hall of Fame that we promise to take care of and keep in temperature controlled vaults and all the things that require um, safekeeping for eternity. We will ask guys throughout the year, uh, guys and ladies, any, anybody who's involved in baseball. Um, I say that actually, I woke up this morning and I just saw a, a woman who pitched in the Australian Baseball League yesterday. It was the first, first player to pitch in the ABL. And I took the story, forwarded it on to people in our collections department and said, hey, is this someone we would want to reach out and, and ask if, if uh, there's an item of hers we want to collect? So that that's one way we would do it from a distance. But then um, we were actually, myself and another gentleman from the Hall of Fame, John Chestakovsky, we were at the, at the World Series. So in Houston, um, we on the last game, we were down in the Braves clubhouse collecting items. We were down in the Astros clubhouse. We asked Dusty Baker for his cap. We asked Jordan Alvarez for a helmet. Um, we asked several others on both teams um, for just items that we can bring in that can be part of our displays. And then again, when they once they donate it, they are in fact getting um, a guarantee that we will look after it forever. It's a it's a really pretty cool process. And and then the last thing I'd say is we get tons of offers for items from fans. Um, there's actually a, I, I had lunch while I was uh, in Houston with a huge huge Astros fan in town there who has an incredible collection. And so quite often we have people with collections who will call us and say, you know, I've got this set of, I don't know, 1986 Mike Scott baseballs that I've been collecting in my, in my house forever with the, with, with the hall of fame ever consider taking them. And we go through a whole process of, is this, is this rare? Is it, can we confirm that it's real and genuine and authentic? And then um, does it fit? the kind of stories that we're trying to tell at the Hall of Fame. So we get offered a lot more things than we can actually accept. There's a lot of things that we have to turn down, but we love when people come calling and saying, hey, I've got something I want to donate your way or that sort of thing. Yeah, when you talked about reaching out to players and, you know, let me have your hat. I mean, I couldn't imagine saying no. Because you <laughs> that's something you could tell your kids and your kids could tell their kids. Like your grandpa's... Pat is in the Hall of Fame because he threw a no-hitter. Exactly. So, and so, yeah, we try. We, we have some guys who will occasionally say, you know, I'd rather not give a jersey, but can I give a hat? Or I'd rather not give my glove, can I give a batting glove? But for the most part, they really do love, uh, even Jock Peterson at one point, we, he walked by us and I said, said, hey, I know those are real pearls, so of course I'd never ask you for those. And he kind of laughed and walked away. This is literally after they've won the World Series. And he comes back about two minutes later and says, hey, were you serious about that? And I said, I'm serious if you're serious. And he went and called his jeweler and he came back and said, you know, my jeweler says he'll give me another pair if I want to give you this one. And I was like, we'll take it. And so now Jack Peterson's pearls are hanging in the Hall of Fame exhibit right now, focusing <laughs> the World Series. That's pretty awesome. So what yeah. is the cost to get in there? I know people can look it up on the Internet or something. Is there like a, a week pass or a two day pass or is it just daily fees? It's daily, um, and it's obviously good for the whole day. Um, it's just it's everything is under thirty dollars. We have different prices 
um, for regular tickets, for kids, for seniors, for veterans. Um, so I can't, I probably couldn't give you the entire rundown, but everything mm. is what well, we try to keep it very inexpensive. We know people are spending a lot of money to, to come here and be a part of it. And ultimately, like I said, we're a nonprofit, so we can't have people come in for free, but, um, the, the ticket prices, um, they're, they're really, for the most part, I'd say they're either at the same rate or lower than any other, whether it's the, the football hall of fame or the rock and roll hall of fame or college football. Hall of, all, we, we try to kind of stay on par with our, the people that, that have similar sorts of museums of that kind. And it obviously takes a lot of money to keep this thing up and running. Um, but I think we're pretty, I'd like to, I'd like to think we're pretty competitive in, in uh, keeping our ticket prices very low. Well, Josh, that's all I have. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and I enjoyed the conversation and I feel like I, I know a little more about the hall of fame and look forward to going and visiting it. Well, thanks Rob. I hope uh, your crew will come there. And if anybody that's listening ever, ever pops in and, and tells the visitor services people that they heard it and heard it on your podcast. Um, I'll make sure I come out and say hello, give them a little extra something special. So I'll give you a reason to come out and visit us and uh, good luck to you all in the future. All right. Thanks for uh, coming on, Josh. And thanks everybody for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.